Good afternoon. We're here with Kurt Gerwitz, a finance professional, professor, and very enthusiastic advocate of numerous financial theories and mathematical uh, related business concepts that his students appreciate. And we're going to try to draw out as much useful information and beneficial information from his education, experience, and overall perspective on life throughout this podcast today. So thank you for joining us, uh, Professor Gerowitz. Uh, you're welcome, Dietrich. You forgot personal friend in the introduction there. This is, since we're using podcast uh, media, we, we should uh, be relaxed and, and genuine and tell everybody what good friends we are. Well, I appreciate that authenticity, but I didn't want to disparage or otherwise undermine your professional reputation by associating you with me, uh, professor of ethics. With a kindness. Right, right. So uh, if you don't mind, if we could start out, uh, I'd appreciate it if you shared a little bit about your undergraduate, graduate education journeys, and even a little bit about your personal journey in that transition from uh, your undergraduate goals, personal and professional, to deciding to pursue a business background, and then moving into the financial and banking sector, uh, where I think you've, you've demonstrated not only great knowledge and prowess, uh, but also experienced quite a bit of professional success. So your journey started at Loyola New Orleans, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So look, I, I can make this very detailed and, and can go for about an hour, or I can give you the, the broad overview and let you pick out what's most interesting and, and dive into that. So we'll, we'll try to do it that, that latter way. Yes, so I went to Loyola New Orleans uh, out of college, out of high school. I, I only applied to Jesuit universities because uh, I liked their way of learning. I knew that I was going to uh, not select a major right away. I, I knew I didn't know what I wanted. And my dad had gone to Loyola University in New Orleans, so that was natural for me to go from St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm from, to Loyola. His majored in history and Spanish, which is, uh, you know, I joke with people that's not recommended, but it's, uh, I had been told that a liberal arts degree, like people with a liberal arts degree will go farther in business than, uh, than business majors. And that is something that I carry, a belief I carry with me today because I, I find business majors uh, can be often quite narrow in their scope. Whereas, you know, as a history major, I'm able to see, you know, a, a much bigger picture. And uh, this, the foreign language helps too. I, as a foreign language major, I had to live in a Spanish speaking country. So I lived in Mexico, had a great time in undergrad. And I did know, you know, I, I went through undergrad with the belief I would eventually go get my master's degree which uh, I did 10 years later at Tulane, got an MBA and specialized in finance and international. Uh, between those two is, is uh, probably what makes me most interesting, though it doesn't contribute much to my, my paycheck these days. Uh, I, had, I was teaching high school, coaching soccer. I had joined the Jesuits to become a Catholic priest. So I did one year of spiritual boot camp. That's, we did a 30-day silent retreat called the Spiritual Exercises. I did an experiment living in a uh, Spanish-speaking-only homeless shelter in Houston there, uh, the Catholic Worker House, and uh, took vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Uh, for, those, for those interested in the religious path, you, you might know that I, you might like to know I was engaged to the church, but did not marry her, so I never took vows. <laughs> And uh, so that, that's probably the most interesting part of my history. When I left that, uh, I returned to St. Louis because my father had cancer. 
and it was time for me to be with him. And so I, um, I took a job as a behavioralist in the inner city. The, the job title is behavior interventionist. So I would get between the teachers and the students when problems would happen, which happened right quite frequently, but I learned a lot about culture and uh, culture in the workplace so that, in that experience. So then it was time for me to go get my, uh, my MBA. And, and so I moved back to New Orleans to go to Tulane. And um, I had met my, my wife at that time. So we got married and, and I started in, uh, so I, I had a good, you know, good connections through good networking. I found myself at the, uh, you know, at a job interview for foreign exchange trader at a local bank called uh, Hancock Whitney Bank. They, they do exist out in Houston, so you guys might know them there. And after a few years of that, I uh, had a good time there, and then I moved into the investments area in the bank. And so I was, um, the job title was wholesaler, which meant that I was selling, the bank had mutual funds, which is kind of rare for a mutual fund to come out of a bank, but we did. We had 10 of them or so, and my job was to travel around the world and or travel around the country, America only, and connect with investment advisors and tell them about my products. So in that function, I, I served a lot like a pharmaceutical rep visiting doctors. So I wasn't customer facing, but my clients were. I think that's, I, that, yeah. that's, that's all uh, pretty amazing. I'm going to cut you off because I think we'll delve a little bit more into that development of the financial industry as we go forward. But before we lose complete focus on some of those historical things. Of course, we, we have the connection in New Orleans with Loyola New Orleans and the Jesuits. Um, uh, of course, some people may want to do some research on Ignatius of Loyola and how that practical journey influences some of that thought process that is beneficial in business in the same way that the Wellesley tradition, you'll often find Methodists in positions of, of public trust, uh, former Governor Perry and so forth in Texas, and, and how our journeys crossed again, our paths crossed again, in Houston, as you were not only building that proficiency in a second language by immersing yourself in our Spanish language culture in Houston, but also exploring um, some of those behavioral ideas, right? So that behavioral interven interventionist idea also then allows you to understand human behavior, uh, which I think is relatively pertinent uh, as addressed with the idea of your benefits that you're seeing or realizing through a major different than the traditional business major background before pursuing the, the business graduate degree, um, recognizing how human behavior can sometimes be irrational. We see that in the stock market, we see it in purchasing, we see it in risk analysis. And so we see that, that sort of discrepancy between facts and data and human behavior that you are uniquely and expertly positioned to analyze and apply uh, to these financial markets and, and banking concepts, particularly because you immersed yourself with human behavior of all types, diverse demographics, diverse um, sort of situational issues, diverse environmental influences. Uh, that means experiencing different cultures, people, personalities in the regions associated with New Orleans, Houston, St. Louis. Uh, and so all those things bring together where you were really able to apply that liberal arts education where you were taught how to think where perhaps had you pursued a business undergraduate degree, you would have been taught more about what to think and specific theories as biased or prejudiced by the professor teaching XYZ course. And so I think even, even just with what you've shared so far, there's something for our listeners to appreciate with regard to the benefits of a non-traditional path with recognizing how 
you don't necessarily have to fit within a certain box to achieve within a, a certain desired industry. And to a certain degree where the path that you choose uh, may not be the one that eventually finds you. That is that your, your destination may be something sort of externally uh, determined where you have an interest of your own, but your particular skill sets and culturation and, and um, overall talent areas are realized in an industry or, or uh, profession that you did not otherwise anticipate. So it's sort of put upon you uh, without your own introspection. So all that, all that's fascinating, but, but please continue. So you've yeah, well, moved let me, through your Forex training. We've, we've moved through yeah, wholesaling. Well, so the next part of my journey is I, I moved to Denver, but I'll, I'll, uh, I want to speak to something you said. Um, might have two quick stories here. The, the first one is when I took economics as an MBA. So all that experience, you know, 10 years after undergrad, plus an undergrad in, in a non-traditional path towards an MBA. And when you take economics and they, they go through the assumptions, before we take this class, let's make assumptions and they start with people are rational. And I'm just like, excuse me, nope, nope, sorry, not, not gonna play here. And you know, the, the business community or the, the intellectual community knows that that's certainly not the, the case at the individual level for, for certain. And we're filling in the gaps in, our, in the human body of knowledge with uh, behavioral finance. So that's a natural place for me to go. The uh, professor on her, his third marriage is telling you about human behavior. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're not the expert. <laughs> right. You know, the, the economists would argue that people are, uh, you know, people are predictable or rational in large groups. And as individuals, that's a different game. They're very much less predictable, but, uh, and that, that's a fair argument. Um, however, we do still, we still see it market anomalies for sure. The, the other story that comes to mind is, uh, you know, excellence in, in many things. You know, it is it is generally good advice to specialize, and and uh, but as an MBA uh, and as an MBA professor, I make the argument for the generalist, and I you know I've been in a work situation, and I'm I'm I have got a you know I've got a story now where my students are kind of amazed at the different things that I'm able to do in class because I can I can break down the the English grammar at a very high level in the course, um, but I can also you know crunch a spreadsheet and rock a pivot table and, and build out a, a sophisticated financial model. But I, I learned at some point in, along the way, I, I had seen a boss of mine who was better at everything that his, his uh, specialist employees were able to do. And that, that just reminded me that like, so he's, you know, on these three categories, he's like, a, he's above them, even though they are specialized in one of those categories and he's above them in that too. So it, that's what I aim to be is excellent, uh, not just excellence across the board, but um, in a lot of variety of things, but actually better than, than those who even do specialize in those things. That would be awesome. And, and I'll agree with you. I mean, you know, so again, one of the, my backgrounds is, as my students know is uh, undergrad and postgrad work in sociology. And it's definitely uh, been my experience in, in educational affirmation to see how groups are much more predictable. And so uh, the inherent disdain that sociologists may have for psychologists is trying to predict individual behavior, which is just uh, very bizarre and, and uh, sort of counterintuitive as opposed to groups. And, and you mentioned that excellence, which is, I think, relevant now to mention a little bit of Latin, where we, we talk about ad majorum de glorium in that Jesuit identity, where uh, one of the things that I think particularly students should recognize is understanding that area that you are striving to be excellent in, 
So you may do things all for the honor, uh, greater honor and glory for God. You may do it all for the greater honor and glory of profit. Um, so you may, you know, you may do it for some sort of ethical or corporate social responsibility related concept. Whatever that is, um, seeking that excellence will help you achieve it. You know, if you that old saying, if you if you reach for the stars, you can at least uh, reach for the you'll at least attain the sky, right? You can reach the top of the mountain if you reach for the stars. So, so reaching further, um, so that whatever your achievements are, even if they're not quite your furthest goal, um, they are still more exemplary or further than um, those those lower level things. So, that's I, I think all that's pertinent wisdom uh, for for sort of entry-level professionals and students coming out of our undergraduate or graduate programs. I, I gave a, a Toastmasters speech recently and, and the title of it was Aim Higher. And you know, it, like I, and I believe on, on the group level, no matter the size, as well as the individual level, you're negotiating with uh, yourself, you're negotiating with the external world and you have to ask for more than you expect to receive. I think that's absolutely pertinent. And, and before we delve too far in negotiation, we can come back to that because I do think we're going to naturally sort of transition to some uh, corollary business concepts that'll be valuable for the listeners uh, so, the, so the audience can really tap into your knowledge and expertise, um, but, but recognizing absolutely where um, as we aim higher, as we, we seek greater things, we can appreciate specialization, we can appreciate negotiation, and some of those counterintuitive things. So we were just talking about human behavior, your work is a behavioral interventionist and, and sociology, that group behavior versus psychology and individual behavior. And, and some of the research that we've seen that's fascinating on the negotiation concept, and you may have some anecdotal references to this in, in financial markets or, or banking structures where uh, there's a, a California professor who highlights the fact that women negotiating for themselves are the worst negotiators in the world women negotiating for other women are the best negotiators in the world. So some of these disparities where we see enculturation, environment, demographics, all of those things come into play to ensure that, not that you trap yourself in an, in an externally identified or, or restricted uh, identity, but that you are aware of some of the hurdles that you may experience based on those demographics, environment, education, uh, any of those aspects or identifying characteristics and then you're able to overcome them because you're cognizant, right? So that avoidance of denial, that recognition, that introspection that leads to greater success. Um, but, but you've mentioned a couple of things already that uh, as a person who, who doesn't count or do numbers on a regular basis or at all, if avoidable, um, I, I, I've seen these ads for Forex. So this is foreign exchange. What does that mean? Is this is this me traveling to another country? I, I go get a, a foreign significant other, uh, and 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 then I've exchanged uh, you know, cell phone numbers, and 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 that's that's forex. Yeah. So that, my first job out of out of my MBA program was a foreign exchange trader was the title, and then and moved it up into a foreign exchange specialist. So this is a function inside the bank. My most recent job before I've made the transition to teaching full-time here at Regis is, uh, was a foreign exchange as a service. So a non-bank provider. So I can explain it to you in theory and, uh, and, and big macro uh, concepts that are some, somewhat fun, but I can also tell you like on the ground, what, what are people, what are companies actually doing? Um, I, I, and, and, and how about, how about a, a brief explanation of both? Yeah. I mean, I, I think people are familiar with the, um, with funny money, I, I think most people's exposure to foreign exchange comes when you're a kid and you get, 
you know, somebody brings you a, a you, you kind of know it's money and, and, and the, by, probably by the way it was given to you by your, by an adult. And then, uh, and it had, but it has funny pictures on it. It's not, that's not your president and it's a different color. And, and those numbers, you kind of get a sense that those numbers aren't the same, right? And so that's your, kind of your first introduction to uh, the natural concept of, of uh, exchange rates that, you know, if, if I can trade you three bananas for two apples one day and then the next day those three bananas are only worth one apple that you know oh, congratulations you've learned inflation and exchange rates as simple as that I, I do like to talk about there's you know there's 200 countries in the in the world perhaps and um, between the top five six uh, currencies it's it's 96 percent of the trading volume the U.S. dollar is 80 percent of the U.S. trading volume and um so it, it, and half of them don't have uh, currencies that you can even trade. That they're just their their banks are not their financial markets aren't sophisticated enough. There's not enough rule of law in the in certain in most in half of the world is, is what it feels like. So we've got a lot of progress to do to to build the world into uh, an economy that works for everybody. Which I know we, we talk a lot about that for America, but um, the the world's a big place. And on, on the ground level, I mean, we, we, we recognize that practical aspect of sort of tangible representations of money, that is what commodities or, or services or goods can be exchanged uh, for XYZ currency. And one of the things that I think of as a young numismatist was uh, Congressman Ron Paul, uh, now his, his son's a senator from Kentucky. And uh, one of the th first things I noticed on an initial visit to his office maybe 20 years ago was he had Nokeld on his walls. Well, Nokeld was German inflationary currency that was very city-state specific. And I recognized it because my father was also a collector of this Nokeld and, and this Weimar Republic historical reality of people taking wheelbarrows full of cash to buy a loaf of bread, those sorts of poignant and, and very memorable pictures explaining to us um, sort of this currency reality of the value assigned by external parties. Again, what you can do with it is determined by another organization. Um, understanding how one of the, the big indicators in, in the Houston region, of course, is the West Texas Intermediate. Understanding how uh, each of those trades equals 100,000 barrels of oil that must be received. And so if you don't have capacity to receive that commodity, um, it immediately becomes a liability as opposed to a profit. So you have this a commodity that you're rich in, you've got 100,000 barrels of it perhaps or more, but you don't have the capacity to store it outside of Cushing or any of these other facilities. And so you need to sell it at a loss to make sure that it can go somewhere um, at the appointed times where those, those trades close. So I mean, understanding currency is to me at least very complex and understanding the valuation, at least in light of historical realities of Nokeld, Argentina, of course, is, is a place that's experienced hyperinflation. We've seen Venezuela go from one of the leading economies in the world over the past few years. And, and this intersection of uh, global finance and politics where you see uh, these the, the currency value and trading uh, capacity shifting in a way that is sometimes at least unexpected. Uh, so we, maybe people didn't expect Venezuela to, with its you know fifth largest, sixth largest oil reserves in the, in the world falling to the state that it's in now. Um, but, but how does that work in a banking industry? How do you predict that? How do you ensure against losses when 
uh, a, a currency is suddenly shifted or somebody unilaterally, right? These are sovereign states. And so maybe um, Mugabe or, or, or one of these other past leaders, um, Gaddafi, some of these folks that are no longer in power decide unilaterally, this is what my currency is worth. Do we just accept that on the world stage? How does that work? Yeah, you, when you touch on risk, that is the, the basis of so much of the study of finance, you know, is, is you have your dollar, what are your threats, you know, to the dollar, not, not just your opportunities. Uh, so, you, you know, I picked up uh, both country risk as like if, you know, if the country defaults like Argentina likes to do every 10 years, or if they, uh, you know, like to sw they accidentally swing uh, socialist like Venezuela did. Um, and so, yeah, it, it affects the currency, sure. But, you know, when I, when I talk about currency risk, I'm talking about just like assumed fluctuations in the currency, the ups and downs uh, that the currency moves. And generally, it's a, generally I'll say this, it's, it's a generally a bet on the economy of that country. That's the simplest way to think about it. But um, it plays out, there's a, a, a tied relationship to interest rates. So, you know, not, different countries have different interest rates. There's a, what we call an arbitrage pricing scenario between the, you know, the future value of one currency and the future value of your own currency. And if you compare the two, there's no, there's no way to make money on a, there's no arbitrage. There's no risk-free uh, profit on, in trading those, like if you started trading the futures today. I also loved your story about, you know, taking delivery on a, on a commodity. Chicago has, uh, you know, is, is the place in America where we trade our commodities for, out of. And there's, there's stories of people having to take delivery on wheat or oil or, or, you know, fill in the, there's a story of filling the river, the Chicago river, filling it with onions because some trader <laughs> made a mistake and didn't get out of a trade. But, and a lot of this is just very confusing. And of course, then we're, we're advocating for, for folks to come take your courses at Regis because I, I don't even understand how certain countries, I, I, I mean, I understand from a geopolitical standpoint, when Nigeria had two capitals, right? You had the business capital and the political capital. But I don't understand how in a currency market, a country like China can have two currencies. Uh, you, you, you've got the NIMBY, RENIMBY, uh, mm. and then the Yuan, and then, I mean, it's one country. So, you know, that, and this, that's a, this is a perfect example of how my background in a modern foreign language prepared me for something that I learned later in finance. And because in a, the, the reason that's hard for you is because you, you were born in America and you speak English and a dollar, the unit of measure of a dollar is a dollar. And so to you, those two words are identical, but I, I can't think of an example right now. Something might come to mind in a little bit, but there's, there's instances where you learn a word in a foreign language and you're like, oh, like in Spanish, estar and ser are both to be. Right, and so you have to learn that a star is like temporary, like I'm 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 that way temporary. I am sick, versus I'm deadly ill is the Sarah version of that same adjective with a different verb. But so your your brain has to take one concept in this case the dollar, and you have to split it between because and and uh, you mentioned the renminbi and the yuan. The yuan is a unit of the renminbi, and it's the same thing in England. It's the um, it's the the sterling. Is the, is the name of the currency. And a pound is a unit of sterling. And that kind of, if you think of sterling as silver, that, that might help it, help it go into the mind a little easier. It, it doesn't though. I grew up in Texas. I know saber, conocer. I know that both of those mean to know. So you just know, you don't need saber and conocer. You just use no, K-N-O-W. 
Well, in English, there are, you know, there's actually more words in English than there are in Spanish. So there, there are, I'm sure it, it, it actually, if you're a Spanish speaker learning English, that happens to you, that experience that you and I are describing probably happens to you more often than what, what are these subtle distinctions? Uh, and one of my favorite definitions of intelligence is, is being able to make distinctions. Uh, I'll give you another definition of intelligence is uh, being able to predict the future. And that, and that's one I like, that's why I'm in finance, not accounting. Accountants look backwards and they have certainty and finance, uh, financiers look forward and they look at risk and they look at probabilities and we try to predict the future. But so, so I want you to get this concept here that a dollar is the unit of measure of a dollar. That doesn't make any sense to you because they sound the same. But if a pound is a unit of measure of sterling, that is the scenario in the language of England for their currency in the United Kingdom. And it's, so it's, it's not two currencies in China. They're one currency, it's, it is the renminbi and you, you measure and count yuans of renminbi. Well, I, I, I just, I have to say, this is, this is very convoluted. So I'm, I'm guessing everybody's just gonna have to take your class because <laughs> at the end of the day, for me, I, I think these words, I mean, English is the simplest language. We all know this. And, uh, you know, anybody that, anybody that disagrees is probably right. But, you know, then, then you've got these folks in England using the pound, which we know is a unit of weight. Um, they don't understand it because they use something foreign called the metric system. It's a good thing that the United States is the oldest, most historical country on the planet. Um, so, so recognizing that uh, as an American, as a Texan, as the world leader, um, I, I appreciate your distinctions, but they don't make any sense to me. Um, and, and, and I will though, I will, the only area that you've just said that I agree with is that accountants are defective. So um, as a finance person, you, you look forward and accountants look backwards. As a person who's a legal practitioner, um, the creativity that's involved in finance is much more appreciable, appreciable to me uh, than the certainty that is in account, accounting. So we can at least agree that finance and legal professionals are superior to accountants. So on that right. note, what we can agree, but the rest of this, um, as a person who wears a red tie and lives in Texas, I, it just doesn't make sense. We're, we're just gonna have to take your class. And one of the things though that you teach in your class is something called Anderson reports. So I've heard of Dun & Bradstreet, I've heard of um, using, you know, in my, in my procurement background, I use the, the comptroller public accounts and some of the federal databases to determine disbarred vendors but I've never used Anderson reports. What are, what are those? Not yet you haven't. So my students are gonna spend the semester writing a report on a publicly traded company. Okay, so th there's, there's enough there to kind of build out the, the environment I'm working in is I'm, I'm these students are gonna move on to, um, you know, maybe, maybe not even in uh, careers in the investment field, but that's what they'll be prepared for. We do a lot of uh, everything we touch, it, it touches so much of finance and strategy and business that uh, whatever whatever we're doing, um, it will be useful to just about any any job in business in the future. Um, so the reports themselves, uh, the reason we choose a publicly traded company is because their financials are available, right? This is this is a, a great thing in America and in the and in the world that uh, when a company chooses to go public, most likely to get the the entrepreneur gets his big payday and gets wealthy that day that all these other investors now get to put in money into that company and, and the, the entrepreneur takes a big a, a very small slice of that very large amount of money and and has a big payday and but then they become accountable to the public markets they have to those uh financial statements are now audited 
and they've worked for a year to, to, uh, to be publicly listed. And on a quarterly basis, they have to tell us, uh, the whole world, they have to show us their numbers. And that, so that is not the case for public companies or, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, for private companies. So a private company would be, for me, it would be a lot harder to do an assessment on unless the owner said, hey, you can look at my books. So, so we're looking at, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, so I'm curious, so because Dun & Bradstreet provides commercial data analytics and insights for business. So how, is, how, is, how are the Anderson reports different? So Dun & Bradstreet is, um, you know, they're getting their information um, from all over the place. So they're taking uh, public information for their public companies and they have some access to um, private companies themselves. They, they do, they'll do the credit reports for private companies. So they have access to those. That's just a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a, uh, not a credit uh, rating agency uh, done in Bradstreet, but they, um, it's an information database. What we're doing is they, so Dun & Bradstreet's gonna, gonna touch uh, probably 10,000 companies and I'm, we're gonna do one. Mm. We're, actually, we're, we're doing two this semester, we'll do three next semester. So we're doing a deep dive and we'll, we will use Dun & Bradstreet as a, as a resource as we go. We will also interview management. I love this, this part of the story is we get access to face-to-face uh, -to -face interview with the CEO. The students get to go through that experience. Uh, it's part, and so we, I get to teach them executive presence. Don't ask any questions that, that are already publicly available that you could have just Googled. Don't look like an idiot kind of thing. And then, you know, how to, um, you know, even how to phrase some things in, in, in finance, we, we, we would, you wouldn't say, uh, so are you going to make money next year? You would say, uh, do you have any uh, color on your guidance for revenue next year? And uh, even though you'd ask the same question, um, so, we're, so the point here is that the students are going to make a report and that's going to be so useful that for them in their job search, they're, they're going to put their name on something that they're proud of. It's going to give them confidence like it, it did for me. I got a job because I, uh, you know, that job at, at the Hancock Whitney Bank, the story is that I, I, I wasn't even going to work in, in research, but uh, it just naturally came up in conversation. I pulled it out of my suitcase, gave it to the to the interviewer and then the, the tables kind of turned and I started to feel confident. He, when he starts to ask me questions, I know way more about this subject than he does. And it's no longer, you know, it's, it, the, the tables had turned. It was, it was a, a great experience. So I'm trying to provide that for our students. And we're only looking at companies that are headquartered in Colorado. So it's, it's got a nice little local flavor, uh, which, which I hope will bring us some media attention, some more local media attention. If you're interested in this in, in uh, Texas, there is a, a similar program at Tulane University where I got my MBA called Birkin Road Reports. And they, uh, because there's probably only six publicly traded companies or less in all of Louisiana, and there's a there's hundred in Colorado. Um, the, the professor there has expanded into all of the Gulf Coast. And so Texas is a big part of that. He's, he's reached up into Georgia to, to be able to claim companies headquartered in Atlanta, gets a lot of names there. Um, but the fun ones are the are the that there's that there's small cap stocks. So we think that ho that uh, not Hollywood, but Wall Street. Same thing. Some days that Wall Street is uh, you know under not lo looking at these companies because they're small and they're far away. And so we look at them. It's the idea is you know there's an investment idea here is if we find something special before Wall Street does, that's an informational advantage that we can uh, use to profit. That's I mean I think that's all professionally relevant. And, and especially learning the language, right? So that's how you communicate your knowledge. And so understanding the terms of art, 
uh, of course, in, in legal parlance, we use a lot of Latin reciprocal, um, you know, post hoc ergo propter hoc, those sorts of ideas. And so, uh, you know, and then understanding those seminal cases uh, like Ultramaras, you know, that 1931-32 case where you established certain accounting liability doctrines that then later became relevant with major cases such as Enron. So you're teaching people how to communicate their knowledge in a way that is conversant within the industry. So sort of immediately uh, validating and, and demonstrating uh, competence, which I think is highly relevant. And then also recognition of that regional specificity of expertise that's essential where uh, if, you're, if you're in Texas, oil and gas is, is still, energy overall is still one of our chief uh, or, or principal areas of, of business and profit. So being, able, being conversant in those terminologies, being able to exercise due diligence and then communicate to others that knowledge, I think is gonna be especially helpful for your students and, and prospective students for your program to be able to demonstrate to employers, uh, potential clients and so forth, that validity. So I, we, I, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, we say that, um, that accounting is the language of business. And so you gotta have a good foundation in accounting and, and, and the methods by which I'm bringing that to the students is, is very practical. And we, they, they've complimented that. They've said it's, it's, uh, it's crazy to see how relevant and useful these, con these you know, esoteric academic concepts that we've been learning in, in, edu in, in an education setting are, this is how they're used in the real world. This is how stock prices are picked uh, around because people look, this is how that information is, is digested so now it starts to make sense why it's presented and languaged the way it is. Right, and, and, and a movie that I had started, but I didn't finish until I visited with you, and we'd finished it, China Hustle, being conversant in some of these more abstract terms, some of this technical or, or abstract knowledge can allow you to ask the appropriate due diligence questions to ensure that you're protecting your business interests uh, in the Institute of Supply Chain Management there is a code of ethics of so standards and principles, and you have a duty to your employer, whether that be um, somebody that has hired you as a consultant or your immediate employer, or even if you're an independent contractor, you have a duty to that hiring authority to be conversant and, and, and sort of up to date with your knowledge and being able to demonstrate these terms might allow you to discover potential fraud, waste and abuse, um, sort of discern a certain level of expertise with a potential subcontractor or, or business partner um, earlier than, than, than not having this knowledge. And, and of course, it's appreciable that you're using public companies to really be able to understand what you're analyzing. I, I remember in my procurement background, we had a major private architecture firm that would regularly lose bids, even though we were anecdotally and, and um, quite aware of their expertise and financial position because of the wealth of the, the owner and founder. Um, they could probably have self-funded all the projects and then taken a, a reimbursement check later, uh, but that's not what, the way to do business, so they wouldn't. Uh, but uh, we recognize this, this knowledge and expertise and financial position, but because they were a private company, we could never get access to the books in a way that would allow us to satisfy the requirements of our public bid or solicitation requirements. So uh, unfortunately, they were at a disadvantage because of that, but I, I recognize also that being able to limit the universe whether it's six companies or hundred companies, instead of studying a thousand companies and trying to find that lesson, really building that expertise by focusing on a narrower uh, sort of component part of, of the overall industry and building that knowledge and expertise within that, then those are lessons that you can apply to the broader as opposed to trying to grasp 
thousands and thousands of different business um, margins, profit, profit margins uh, or loss margins or those sorts of things associated with it. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, analysts serve a, a, a very useful function in, in the functioning of the markets. And you know, you got to think about all those analysts who didn't see that there was something wrong at Enron. It, it is still easily to be, it's easy to be deceived as the movie you, you mentioned presented that, that the, the main characters, the protagonists in that movie were, they were make, trying to make money for their clients and they were, so they were like China's growth. There's tremendous growth in China. So they loaded up on China and then, uh-oh, China is also fraud. And so then they, they shorted it, tried to make money for their clients again um, on the way down as they started to become, uh, you know, then, then they, they moved over to the dark side of finance, which is shorting. You know, the company that my students are covering this semester uh, was recently a, um, a, 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 I won't say a victim because I'm not, we don't have a conclusion on this yet, but they were attacked in a short and distort attack. And... Uh, it's playing out now in the courts. Uh, you know, it, it's they they have a story uh, the CEO likes to tell. Uh, so this is his version of it and his side of things. I want you to know my bias here when I tell this, but I, I love the narrative here. That um, so you, the the narrative the the short of it is that uh, you know you're betting for a company to go down, and then you use your voice to bring other attention from the markets to realize that there's a reason this company is going to go down. There's some that there's you know the movie The Big Short was a short on the housing market uh, in the United States, which had sort of never been done and, and nothing that it's, it's rare that something that large gets done. So that's why you make a movie about it. Um, but there's a, there's a good one. If you like this, these narratives, look up Bill Ackman went after Herbalife saying that it's a, it's a pyramid scheme. And once that gets revealed, the price will go down. I've shorted it. Here's my research, but let's have, let's now have a fight for the truth and see what's really happening. And there's a, a phenomenon in the world where smaller companies, like the ones we look at at Anderson Reports, they're so small that uh, if you shorten, distort, and you can damage them so much that they can't recover, and, and that might be the part of the defense of the attacker to say that if, if the company runs into bankruptcy, they can't do anything against me. Well, the company we're covering survived this attack and is now suing for... Uh, words that you would know that I don't, perhaps libel or uh, uh, unlawful enrichment uh, or unjustified enrichment and uh, defamation. And so they're countersuing basically is the way I, I feel about it. And so both sides are suing each other um, and it'll all play out in courts and, and due to a, due to a, a discovery demand, the, the shorter had a, a nickname that he was using online and he had to reveal his name, his real name to the world for what he's done. Um, so it, it's fascinating. Um, I, I'm trying not to pick sides, but I, 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 I do, I do want to come to a conclusion and I'll have it soon. Um, it's leaning towards the company, I think, since they, since they survived this and so many people are looking at their books. But they'll tell the story that these small companies that are getting run into bankruptcy, this is a real problem for humanity because we're looking at, um, if you look at that in the biotech sector, then you've got to, like, who's going to discover the next cure for cancer? Now, COVID money will come in so big, it'll, it'll hit the big guys. But, you know, innovation haps, happens in these small companies with one, you know, genius entrepreneur who has a great idea or, or has a new way to research. And if you can short those small companies while they're still young and just kill them off and make money in the process, that's, that might be a disordered incentive. 
I, and, and immediately I went to Casino Royale with the with the plane uh, attempted sabotage of the plane with with the idea of shorting. So, but I but I imagine that it's done on a much more complex and subtle level in reality. I it, I mean it can be pretty simple. It it can, uh, I don't know that reference. Um, you said casino, so which, which uh, you know makes me think about bets and finance. Um, and this is a, it, it is as simple as like, I, you know, I click on my Robinhood account and I expect, because I expect the stock to move one direction or the other. So it can be that simple, uh, but it can also be as complicated as, as the big short. Absolutely. And, and a lot of these concepts, I, I, I hear a lot of parallels in the supply cycle world. Some of these procurement examples where you're, you're really trying to compare apples to apples as you're analyzing things. And so perhaps you've done a solicitation for a car and because your specifications aren't as specific, you get two bids, one for 24,000, one for 240,000. And your boss says, what's the disparity? Well, it turns out your specifications weren't clear, right? So somebody's submitting a bid on a Corolla and somebody's submitting a bid on a Bentley and they're both cars, uh, but due to the lack of specificity or clarity in your specifications, you didn't get exactly what you wanted. And so the importance of this due diligence, the importance of examining, um, you know, or understanding even the language so that you can build the appropriate understanding of what it is your employer or your clients are seeking. Uh, I think there are a lot of parallels in this. Inventory controls, I see some parallels in, in some of those safeguards that you might see uh, with audits and compliance, right? So, you know, if you have a warehouse full of um, very, very pricey uh, artifacts or something like that, and they're not climate controlled, that can present a problem in supply chain. Or if uh, you don't have a bonded warehouse, or if it's a warehouse with a very large window in the back that people are moving things from. And so by the time um, it's, it's uh, the appointed delivery date um, and you go to remove or distribute those items, 50% of them are missing because you haven't had those controls. I, I mean, I see a lot of these parallels and concepts and protections and, and overall um, principles as related to or analogous to the financial markets. Yeah, you know, when, when you mentioned, um, you know, having the right specs, well, the first thing that came, came to mind was, do you have the right currency? You know, if they're that different, it, it sounds like that might, are those Mexican pesos or are those U.S. dollars? Um, and actually the dollar sign is, is a peso sign. It's, a, it's an S and a P put together. And that's where the line comes from. So don't, don't think that's an American invented, that's not invented here. Oh, I, I had a big debate once with the boss who, who was annoyed that I put USD behind uh, some, some contract uh, language for pricing in a maritime contract uh, without, uh, I guess, uh, this boss didn't have the cognizance to realize that Canada uses dollars, Australia uses dollars. When you talk about the international maritime market, you may not want to be paid in one or the other currency. <laughs> That's very important to make that USD distinction. Good on you for doing that. Uh, but when you mention, you know, having your specs right, you know, there's there's two ideas in design uh, that came to mind. One is having try, trying to get the perfect specs, and the other one is more of an iterative process where you're building the plane as you fly it, which is how we live in the business world. Um, and so, I, you know, I, in, when it comes to supply chain, you always wonder, like, can can we test it? Can we get something small? Can we do can we do some things and see what goes wrong? Oh, that's that's pretty good. Let's well, we're, we're, what goes wrong. This this would be a good place for me to plug the uh, the World Trade Center. Is uh, you know I know there's one in Houston, uh, and I'm connected closely to the one here in Denver. My cousins 
is Karen Gerwitz. She's she's running it here in, in Denver. Um, and they have classes on if, if your students want to learn more about supply chain or want to meet people in the in the field. Uh, that's a good place for that for that uh, community to gather. Absolutely. And understanding, I mean, this global market, and that's one of the cool things about the supply cycle and the financial markets. And of course, there is an interrelation with the international supply cycle finance market, uh, which does assess risk and currency trades, uh, net distributions, right? Do you want a net 30, net 45, net 180, net 365? Uh, what's your ROI? and What's the timeline on it? All of those specifics that are well beyond my comprehension, because uh, once you move past basic, basic arithmetic, I'm, I'm really out of my depth. But um, understanding all those concepts, I, I, I absolutely think that trade organizations, this is World Trade Center, um, some of these professional organizations are, are very uh, appropriate tools for students and particularly young professionals to engage in, to garner that experience and those networking relationships where you have a, sort of a colleague set uh, or, or professional network of individuals who you can ask questions and ensure, right? Sort of tap into those resources, ensure that there's something that you're not missing. Because regardless of how beneficial that overall education is, when you're talking about a 16 week term or even an eight week term, it's very difficult to go through every possible scenario or anecdote, I would say impossible, um, where you, you can say, hey, it depends, context is key, but I can't provide you every context that you'll experience in these markets. And you can't eliminate every risk, but uh, that doesn't mean that with a, a good amount of energy that you can, you can not make, you, you can avoid some big mistakes too. Right, right. Well, Professor Gerwitz, any closing thoughts before we allow the audience to retreat to get some tea and, and otherwise ponder some of these Latin terms we've used, some of these technical financial terms, some of these uh, named references? I like to, um, you know, I like to ask you, Dietrich, uh, you know, why, why are you a teacher? Um, what, what is it that you want for these students? The primary goal in, in my educational efforts, particularly because I teach undergraduate and graduate level courses, so a little different market than, say, a PhD program or a K-12 program, is to provide practical skills for our students to apply in the industries of their choice. So there is an element of demonstrating to individuals uh, certain relevant skill sets, talents, abilities, those, those old school federal KSAs um, to help them discern what it is that they're strong in that they enjoy. So it's sort of an overlap. Sometimes what you really like is not what you're good at. So you may not want to do that as a business. Sometimes what you don't like is what you're great at. Um, so I, I've been told I'm very good at sales, very proficient. I don't want to do that. So finding that balance between what you have a passion for and what you are actually talented in and can be successful in, uh, at least from a tangible way, quantifiable way, uh, is, is part of my goal. So sort of providing the tools and information for students to have that introspection and discernment, make that decision, and then giving them the tools and information, the terms, the concepts, the principles, and so forth. And even as I'm able, as you mentioned, the World Trade Center uh, and, your, and your cousin, uh, Ms. Gerowitz, providing them with those networks, those professional networks, to be successful in those industries. So that's one of the main reasons that I teach is uh, I found that balance for myself, where I, I have something that I'm generally good at, <laughs> uh, generally capable in, uh, that I enjoy, maybe not as much as, uh, as I enjoy um, throwing darts at a bar or something like that, but uh, to, to a quantifiably uh, ROI sense, uh, a profit margin, I, I'm, I'm able to pay my bills and, and be relatively proficient while enjoying this. 
and then provide that also provide that experience and, and information to my students as well. Um, there is an old German saying, man plans, God laughs. My mother was a teacher, my sister's a teacher. Uh, my father uh, has worked in the federal government, so this is a government position. And I sort of blended those careers uh, unintentionally, but uh, it's been a happy blessing and being able to, again, support student success is my primary goal and joy. How is about that, you? Is that German phrase, is that the, the nut doesn't fall far from the tree? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah it's actually, very similar. It's very, uh, you know, it's, it's, I have a similar answer. I'll give you the vocabulary though. It's ikigai. It's a Japanese term, I-K-I-G-A-I. And it's, it's a Venn diagram. And I think I can do all four circles. It's what you're good at, what you like doing, what the world needs and what people will pay you for. And that sweet spot is, um, you know, is what I'm aiming for. And, and, you know, it's also with the Jesuit background, it's, it's, you know, you, you ask yourself, uh, what's God's will for me? And, and it's, it's a, it's maybe it's awkward phrasing if you're, you're not super religious, but it's still a matter of like, what's most meaningful because I really believe we have a choice in life of uh, we get to choose our suffering. We're, you're not going to avoid suffering. We're all going to die. We're all going to lose everyone we've ever loved. And we're going to, um, we're all going to face tremendous tragedy. No one escapes even childhood without some uh, trauma, but it's, it's, you have to buffer these the tough moments in life with, uh, with meaning. And so it's, I get it. I get a kick out of uh, helping others. It, it fills my soul up. It fills, it, it fills my gas tank and, make, and energizes me. And so it's, it's what I'm attracted to do. And so it's, you know, I'm not sure every, uh, everybody who finds themselves as a teacher is, is as passionate about it. I am as it about as it as I am and, and like, won't, um, you know, try to come on to various podcasts and get, get my face out there and let people know the exciting stuff we're doing. And, and, and I love hearing people's stories like yours too. So I think it's a, a very similar, you know, mode, like play to your strengths strategy. I'll say Japanese will cut him off. Uh, because you're absolutely right. I think I think that's a relevant and and very uh, sort of again representative example of of what values students can draw from these courses uh, and the discussions. But also again, sometimes highlighting those key terms and principles to make sure that people know what they're looking for. Right? If you if you don't know what an audit is, if you don't know what compliance is, uh, it's difficult to implement in a business setting or realize your passion for it. Or recognize how to be proficient in that field once um, once it's chosen for you. So absolutely. Well, I appreciate your time. Uh, we won't keep you any further, but I definitely uh, value your insights, Professor Kirk Gerwitz, Denver, Colorado. Um, if you'd like to share your contact information, we'll provide that after the podcast. But I, uh, we, actually, I think there may be one other Kirk Gerwitz on, in America, but I, I have the strongest uh, internet presence of them. So if you just Google my name, I come up. It's easy to find me. Well, the, the, I, I also say there are two Dietrich von Biedenfelds in the United States. There's one who's um, sort of a neer do well, and then there's one who is me. Uh, who I think is I know them both. Well behaved. <laughs> you probably met them both, but yes, yes. So if you oh, Google right. my name, that is funny. You... <laughs> I think they live in the same house. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I've never I, seen I them that. in the same room together. I'm starting to get suspicious. Right, right. No, it's, you know, Clark Kent, Superman, they're two different entities. So, <laughs> well, I appreciate you, Professor Gerowitz. Thank you for your time. Hopefully we can do this again soon. I think we will. Thank you.